Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a podcast where two guys with a particular set of skills talk about theology or whatever else comes to mind. And now here are your hosts, Andrew and Ian. Well, howdy. Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a conversation about theology, the church, and the Christian life with a little nonsense in between. I'm your host, Yates. And this is Ian. And we are both in maybe the craziest moments, I think, of our year. Hopefully. Hopefully the craziest moments of our year. Um, Ian, I know you've got some moving and shaking going on. Uh, pardon the pun. But, it's uh, time for my uh, my annual move. <laughs> I, uh, I I can't seem to stay in one place for longer than a year. So uh, finding a place to live in the city of Toronto is bonkers. And now when you Absolutely say bonkers. it's crazy, I mean, that's kind of a phrase people use. This is crazy. Uh, it was crazy how long Endgame was. It's crazy um, that... How much money Endgame made. It's true. It's it's crazy that Donald Trump is the oldest president of all the presidents we've had um, in this great country of America. There's so many crazy things out there. Is it literally crazy? It's pretty insane. So just to, I was I was telling you this uh, this earlier that I stumbled across the uh, the valuation of this house that I was looking. So this is like a 1960s house that was valued at two hundred thousand Canadian dollars in two thousand and it's That's now worth fifty dollars, right? In American or in Texan <laughs> dollars. Like it's now worth one point two million dollars. So it's appreciated fifty thousand dollars in the last six months. That's so a lot of money. it's like like all the real estate's skyrocketing. if you look at the uh like the same house, the houses that are renting now were renting for two hundred dollars a month less last year basically. So rent's going up like one or two hundred dollars a month, like every year. There's just way too Ugh. many people. So the problem is that there are like five people that apply for every single house opening, and so you basically have to make your this case about why they should choose you over somebody else. Yeah. And if you want to make a case for why they should choose you, having a PhD student's uh, annual income is not helpful. <laughs> uh, it's not a helpful benefit. Let's put it that way. Some people write letters of how great they are. Some people send cash <laughs> of how great they are. Right. Uh, so well, it's, it's been pretty, it's, it's very discouraging. Cause I, I mean, this, this week I've spent probably five hours a day on seven or eight different housing sites, just looking for everything possible. And just, it's just, uh, but it maybe is not as crazy as trying to put two billion people into small groups. Uh, yes, and speaking of uh, five or six changes, um, in the last, uh, actually last week, um, all the small group pastors, there's seven different pastors um, for, that focus on small groups, and there's uh, four different pastors that focus on the various campuses that we currently have. And um, uh, there's been a shift recently where the small group guys now, instead of working directly for the, the czar over small groups, they work for the, the campus pastors at the campus where they have their office, and uh, they do a lot of pastoral care there. But then the other thing was, um, it used to be the small group pastors helped develop the small group philosophy, and now we've basically expanded so much, getting uh, getting guys on the, on the same page and develop, everyone develop it together and... Um, just the level of complexity of the organization. They're like, nope, well, you guys are just going to run the play. We're not going to design the play. We're not going to just you give us feedback. Tell when, what works, what doesn't work, what could work. But we will, This the, the czar. So you just over, got demoted from player coach to uh, 
to player to player. Team, team, team captain. <laughs> That's right. Which So for me, uh, this time of the year is great. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so much to do. Like I'm responsible for um, dozens and dozens and dozens of small groups, which is really too much. Um, forget about organizing and designing and coming up with strategies. Just that alone is unrealistic. But then um, uh, just today, there were probably four or five different um, like like ways of tracking and organizing and training that were shared. And so I just said, you know what? I'm going to wait and let you guys decide what needs to happen. And then I'm going to execute at 4 p.m. And so it was, uh, it was, I mean, I was certainly not sitting on my hands all day, but Man, I, it was great to be under authority. I know we're talking about church organization and different transitions and shifts and different ways of doing things, but uh, it was good not to be king. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, but yeah, so just uh, trying to connect. We're expecting over a thousand people to jump into a small group um, next week. So that's uh, that's a lot of planning. That is bonkers. Uh, so it's really crazy. The way we do it now is everyone submits their information via an app. Like, a, of course, our church has an app. I mean, of course, everything has an app. So there's an app for that. And, and in the service, they say, hey, get on your app and tell us what kind of small group you're looking for. And all that gets populated into a spreadsheet. And so there's a th- at least a thousand lines on the spreadsheet with all this super specific information about it's where and when. It's crazy that app developer and, and uh, like, programmer is now, like, part of a Oh, we have a, a three- or four-man team just for just the, like, the coding. We have a data and... Uh, I don't know, analyst is the term. Like literally she just looks at big data all day um, and makes recommendations and strategies, interprets it. But um, but then we're going to print out uh, a thousand cards and say, hey, if you're a new leader, um, go into this room and draft a dozen cards. Um, then they're all organized and then call them and then boom, load them onto your group right now electronically. And so the evening of we saying we're saying to, you know, maybe 20,000 people join a small group, a thousand people, maybe 90% of them will be connected to a small group by 6 PM. And it's just like totally insane. Um, it's very insane how, how quick it, the turnaround is. But, uh, so yeah, so, uh, be praying for that. Um, your house and the chaos that it could become on the complete opposite side of that. I just think the contrast is funny. So I'm going to a really small, uh, church plant, probably, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 people, but, we uh we we were meeting in a church gym and now we're meeting uh at like this weird it's like a coffee house slash immigration center slash like Taoist What's weird about that? Meditation meditation center. It's like this weird amalgamation. But it's you know, so it's the typical uh it's the typical church plant where you you know, you, you have to set up everything and uh it meets on the we're on the second floor and we store everything in the basement so you know at the end of the service you got to pack everything up and take it down two flights of stairs oh yeah um and so i asked him i was like hey like i want like what can i help around with like well we need help setting up and taking down i was like well i asked i know how to, there's one, <laughs> no if there's one thing i know how to do it's well. like i can i can stack chairs so uh but it's yeah it's interesting just the complete opposite dynamic where we're uh we're having to pack up a church every sat you know every sunday after service and carry it down to the basement sure well so we're launching a campus in a in a high school um at the actually at the same weekend we're doing this massive thousand people connect to a small group um we're also launching our first um first meeting in this in this uh this high school and it's funny to me how we have all these people and all this strategy and it's great 
but we've only got a certain amount of human resource of people that have done this before. And so my office has been just a ghost town because the, the people at my campus were a part of the last high school launch. And so they're going to run the other high school launch. And it's just, uh, it's just interesting to me how, no matter how big or how small you are as a church, uh, some things just don't change. Um, right. Well, so it's also interesting. So I, I asked the pastor, you know, what I could do to help. And he said, well, it's like, I'm sorry, the biggest thing we need for you to do is to help us set up. Uh, and he's like, I know I feel bad because that feels like a waste of your, uh, you know, your training. I was like, well, you know, if Jesus can wash his disciples' feet, I'm sure he would have stacked chairs too. That's a uh, way to be Christ-like. Way to be Christ-like. Well, you try. Good hey, you. we're... We're ta- talking about uh, about church and how they're organized uh, right now, and also this episode. Well, so I've got something to throw in. Uh, so people talk about church ordinances, church structure, church order. Um, I would s- submit that. Um, do you ex- do you accept the terms and conditions before you submit? <laughs> you better. <laughs> Have you, you ever heard the joke that the uh, the, the number one lie? In uh, in the modern world, is uh, oh, I have yeah. read the terms and conditions. There's no chance. I, do they even make those anymore? I mean, like I feel like I just I don't know that I've ever downloaded. So I guess I still do like download like uh, apps or whatever, and I do give away my permissions. But um, um, but so God creates order. Like uh, that's a huge part of what God does. Is he? I think the Bible. I'm almost to the point where I would say. The Bible doesn't talk about God creating from nothing. It talks about God creating order from chaos. Right. Yeah, that's actually. Uh, I'm almost there. Uh, a really inter- it's a really interesting observation that I think has kind of come to the forefront in the last uh, 50, 60 years. Actually, the guy that I'm writing my dissertation on makes a pretty big point of that. Well, so uh, order is a big deal to God and uh, order is a big deal to, to God's people as they reflect God. And like uh, we've talked about how Exodus 18 comes before Exodus 19 where in Exodus 19, they get to 10 commandments. But in Exodus 18, uh, Jethro says to Moses, hey, you guys are just a chaotic mob of slaves walking through the desert. You need some order. Like Moses, you can't you can't do this by yourself. Get some people to help you out. And then uh, it's not until they get structured that God gives them their, def- like the, basically their marching orders. But then for the rest of their the nation's history. And then uh, um, in Exodus, no, see, no, it's... Uh, it's Acts six. Um, the church gets um, the idea of, hey, we got to have some guys praying and fasting and searching the scriptures, but we've also got to have deacons to help out. We got to get some guys to help. We got to get some structure here, and so that's when the church starts to explode. Is once it gets organized in Acts six. Um, got to get organized. You got to get organized, and so the church has always been. I almost said has always been organized. <laughs> that would be a bold <laughs> lie. It has always. Um, it is tried to be structure. structured, yeah. It's even if even oh, if the, I, always I can't say it's been organized. Church order, order. <laughs> it's like it's amorphous, right? Yeah, uh, the amoeba has a unstructured structure. Okay, even if our it always has had a structure, even if it sometimes it's been a bit amorphous. Oh my goodness! Uh, but it is super interesting that what that's what the natural way that structure should be is often really conditioned by what we kind of think a natural organization is right and in some sense it's some it's the personality of the people organizing it right if you have super structured people uh whether it's the people attending or your your pastor or your oh, elders, yeah. right then what's what's an accept what it means for god to be a god and not of chaos probably might might quite different than maybe if you're a group of people or a society that's much more sure um you know if you're in a society that doesn't 
have buses that can arrive on time. What it means to have a schedule of events for your church is really different than what it means to have a schedule of events if you're in Switzerland, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and not besides just that, but also the uh, it's interesting, and we'll talk about this some, I'm sure, how much uh, the natural way churches should be ordered has often reflected the natural way the governments of the people that are going to church are ordered. Oh, that's really interesting. interesting. Uh, the natural way. So do you mean to say it's just what happens, or do you mean to say there's like we hold these truths to be self-evident, like all nature – what do you mean right. by the natural it's way? What seems to what seems to make the most sense for people to organize their uh, their churches often is eerily similar to the way that their political structures are. Oh, they're I see. either similar to the to political structures or they're radically different to them the political structures because the people that organize them were not happy with the political structures. Well, do you, you can see that, for instance, in uh, in uh, Puritan England, when you put the Puritans versus the uh, the pap- well, not the papists, the uh, uh, the royalists. Do you mind if I we just jump into that right there? I've got a question for you. That's uh, a big thing. So, what about like uh, socialist Russia or communist Russia? How would you say the church reflects that uh, demographic? Well, so that's that's a super fascinating question because well, I would say that you actually like have. You actually have the opposite in that case. You you actually have a government that is reacting with a new government structure that was in contrast to the church structure. Okay. Uh, and so, in some sense, it's it would be kind of a that would be the opposite sort of case because the church, uh, the church in Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church far preceded uh, any of the government, even the the czars of Russia. The the church was there before them. Hmm. So I think that you actually have the opposite. Although I I do think you, as far as the communist thing, you do actually have some of the, uh, I think that some of the current uh, popularism of Marxist ideas that are uh, that are integrating into church government now. That's interesting. Um, so you would say that's more like the, uh, um, the exception than the, the norm. I think it'd be the exception, yeah. Just and especially because the government set it itself up. Intentionally against the um, the church, uh, that would be an exception. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, uh, okay. Well, let's so let's jump in. I think um, you've you've basically as you're talking about the church, like historically, globally, you've got the uh, uh, the Orthodox worldwide church looks at the Bible as a really kind of the the prime guide for how should the church be structured. So yeah. Orthodox, there you 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 mean uh, specifically non heretics, uh, non heretics, right? <laughs> basically yeah, yeah. people who are not cults, right? Is what I mean. And by so that. We, we, let's uh, let's be clear up front. So we're talking today about the different ways churches are run and integrate together. Sure. And the the goal of this, my so my goal is kind of twofold. Uh, well, I would say maybe three actually. Three a three pronged attack. Two two things I hope. Yay, even three oh I desire. My. There are seven things that are incomprehensible to a listener <laughs> of podcast. No eight. Uh, so one, <laughs> one, anyway. So one of them is just for people to understand their own church structure, right? So you probably you belong to a tradition, and it's helpful to understand if if you don't know how some of this stuff works. You are but here think, on the tree, right? But I think it's also helpful to understand how other people organize because a it helps you to understand them, but also people are switching traditions now at probably a greater rate 
than anybody else. You know, I found myself at a Presbyterian church of all things. Because, of all places, here I am. <laughs> I mean, here I am at that Presbyterian. Oh my! And goodness. like, I never really expected to be Presbyterian, right? And so, some you know, people move; they're more mobile than ever, and people switch are switching traditions. So it's helpful to have an idea. Uh, maybe you end up in a different tradition that isn't what you grew up in. Well, just to have a primer about how things work, primer? right? Well, I'll give a primer for those of us in America. And uh, I'll do a primer, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's help- it's interesting. You're like, oh, okay, family history. I have a, a great great grandfather that died from eating too many bananas, and another great great grandfather that fought in the Civil War. Okay, that's great. So hopefully, that's like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but I also hope it's helpful um, for wherever you are in a church when you jump into a church. And many of us do when you when you get somewhere you're like so why do we do this and a lot of people right. may not know but if it's like you don't just change your last name you know like that when that happens that's a big deal and so if yeah. you say we are no longer Anglican you're like whoa well what does that even mean you know like who cares why does so um, we may be pushing against things in the modern era that are really really deep in our culture and we don't even recognize it in our culture. Right. Um, as much as people don't like genres, genres sometimes exist for reason. Reason. Uh, so let me throw out real fast two kind of before we get into some of the historical do reasons it. for this. Throw it. Throw out two. I think overarching ideas. Wait a minute. Uh, Hold up. What are the other prongs? I only got two prongs. Well, it's uh, it's not a tri- the trident hasn't been <laughs> hasn't been. This is a Biden. A Biden. Okay, so we're going gigging for frogs. All right, keep going. There we go. Uh, so first, I, I think most of these could all break down to different answers to the question, is a pastor equal to an elder equal to a bishop? So we've talked about this a little bit in our church government Basically. issues but, or our church government episode. We talked about diaconos and presbyteros, um, mm. which would be bishop, uh, sorry, which would be elder, and then episcopos, which is bishop, right? Well, and overseer. Whatever that means. Overseer, right? And there's there, there's some ambiguity about whether or not these are different or the same people. Uh-huh. And a lot of, I think, these are going to break down to and different answers to those questions about what is a pastor, what's an elder, and what's a bishop. And that feeds into a second thing, which is, is this an observation I made, um, actually from listening to a song, which I'll talk about in a second. Oh, my goodness. About how a lot of all of these Different types of governments, I think, are answering the question about who gets to shepherd the church, which is not it's not really a question I think we bring up very often. I think pastors are kind of embarrassed to talk about it because they don't want to make themselves out to seem more important than other people. But the question of what does it mean to shepherd the church and who gets to shepherd the church is actually a pretty significant question. Um, So like you and me, right, Andrew, like you and I have the academic qualifications to be a church shepherd, right? Well, uh, yes. Uh, I don't know that there are it, biblical academic qualifications to be a church shepherd right. or pastor. So according to most of the most of the denominations or whatever in the modern world, right? You and I have there's for most of them there's an if possible there's an academic requirement, right? And you and I have met that requirement. Yeah. Well, I will just but, say character is the number one biblical requirement. Right. So I was about, I was about to say like we have the academic requirement, right? But you and I have been in seminary long enough to know that that means you know that 50 cents will buy your coke right like an academic degree does not qualify someone to be a shepherd of the church uh and so it is a really interesting question about what what does it mean to be a church shepherd uh and and 
what qualifies you. So th- th- what uh, what made me think about this is a song um, that popped up randomly on my Spotify thing. So it's a song by uh, John Michael Talbot and John uh, and Michael Card. So John Michael Talbot is like a mystic Catholic oh, yeah. singer songwriter, and uh, and Michael Card is a uh, Presbyterian, I believe. So they did an album together, which is actually hey, kind of he's, neat. that's part of your family there. He's one of your people, a Presbyterian. Well, now, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they, there's this it's this interesting line about it's in this. So the song is called "There Is One Faith," and it's talk. It's kind of a cool song because they're talking about how there's one faith in one church, and you have a Catholic and a Protestant singing, which is kind of cool. Um, and it has this line: "Some of the shepherds have pastured themselves on the sheep, so he's come out against them and scattered his people of faith." And I was thinking about that, how most of these different governments and these splits that we that we were going to talk about really just come down to the fact that oftentimes uh, the shepherds of God's sheep have ended up eating the sheep Ugh. instead of feeding them. And, uh, and out of that, you have all of these – you have all of these different checks and balances, which are essentially just trying to protect the sheep from bad shepherds. Um, which I think is if that's if that's not tragic to you, then I don't think you have a good view of the church. Yeah, I think the I mean, so most uh, independent churches now have modeled their uh, organization, their leadership in like a two headed or three headed model of checks and balances that seems similar to the Constitution, which is basically saying, hey, we don't trust people. And so they need to be held accountable to it within the organization to another independent body, which needs to be held accountable to another independent body, which I'm all about um, accountability and uh, transparency. But at the same time, if you don't trust somebody, they shouldn't be leading the church. Like if this person is someone who, who lies or cheats or steals or embezzles or exaggerates or manipulates or coerces, they are disqualified from being an elder. And so I think the fact that character is the number one requirements, um, uh, in fact, it's, is it the only requirements? Like you have to be able to teach, but that is. I don't about, think it. I don't think it's the only requirement. Not, uh, but it is up important. I mean, and so, it's ex- I, uh, by large, the primary thing is is character. Right. So, one of the reasons I just want to throw this out to you because the question of of seminary and the value of seminary comes a lot. At least if you're in the U.S. or <laughs> the Canada academic or the qualifications, UK, yeah. What does that right? mean? Right. You, you can't you can't um, get away with. And there's some very popular uh, there are some very yeah. popular pastors. Right I would now say the majority of popular pastors have not been to seminary. Uh, I'm saying probably the, not. Um, well, the, so, I right, mean, well, I mean, yeah. They and they include some good ones, and they also include the, some Joel Olsteins, right? Well, Joel Olstein, uh, I believe, went to seminary. I'm gonna look that up right he now. He did not. He did not. He dropped out after his first year at undergrad. Really? That is yeah. interesting. Um, that is actually very interesting. Um, and so this is anyway. actually this is actually important, and because of this, so Paul tells Timothy, and I'm looking for it right now because I, I used to have this, but he tells him, "Be slow in the laying on of hands." Because some men's sin go before them, leading to their destruction, and some men's sin come after them. And I think that's actually a really, really, that's a really important, and that's why I think something like an academic qualification is helpful. Not just because the knowledge, I think, is helpful, 
But I think that sometimes we have we're very quick to throw people into lead into positions of leadership because we just need people, right? Mm-hmm. And but you have to recognize that some people's uh, some people's disqualification for ministry is blatantly obvious, right? And sometimes it comes after them, and it's helpful to have people, whether it, you know it doesn't have to be seminary, right? But in some sort of cauldron. Where you can think, where you can try to discern whether or not they have a, a cart of sin coming behind them. Yeah, well, I actually, um, I've been thinking a lot about just recently. I'm talking with some friends about um, uh, how seminary it seems. Um, so I, I believe the average graduate from the seminary that that I attended is eight and a half years to graduate, mm-hmm. um, and that is a very high price to pay. And I don't know, I, I literally do not know anyone who came out of seminary saying. I have a more vibrant spiritual life. I'm closer to my family. I'm uh, more integrated with my church than I was when I went in. And I mean, maybe I can think of one or two out of a thousand people I've met who've been through seminary, which is super intense because you're like, if if the primary um, requirement and need for people to lead the church is the people of character to reflect the the person of Christ, uh the idea of academic qualifications based on a um a reformation model of education is uh confusing <laughs> why why are I mean, we doing so, this so i st- i still i still do agree with it and i do think that uh i think people's faith is more vibrant but i think it's it's different um i think it's a different sort of faith and i think that 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 is natural well so um, just the word faith is contradictory to knowledge like you become a expert competently, not. No, it's not, it's no no that I mean that would be completely against the entire tradition of Christian theology to say that it's contrary to knowledge. Well, no, no, no. To say like I am a um I have uh um I walk away I've mastered theology for just mm-hmm. I'm just just saying that to say I've mastered theology the discussion mm-hmm. on God uh the Christian life is a life of faith. Not a life of knowledge. Okay, so i i would I would counter with I would repost with two separate things. First of all, I think if you I don't think that when you walk away with a degree, you've mastered theology. What you should be, and a lot of people go in thinking they're going to master content. What you should have mastered is processes, processes by which to come to conclusions from God's word and from and along with the church. Uh, for making decisions about theology. So that should be what you've mastered. But okay. there is a whole lot of content that you should have mastered, which is essentially not making the same dumb mistakes again. <laughs> you know, and so a lot of like, I guarantee you 80% of the great new ideas that people have in books and Christian bookstores Turns like that out. Are, just, are just repeat <laughs> yeah. of old bad mistakes. And so there is a lot of value. That's not contrary to faith. Learning from our past and from the stupid things we've thought in the past is not contrary to faith. Uh, and I, I and so we'll, we'll come back to this because this is going to be important for a discussion. Sure. We well, have I guess all I'm saying is uh, our current model of developing people that are qualified, um, the idea of being academically qualified is how you get trained to lead the church. Yeah. May not be the best way. I mean, going on the, like right. to develop character. That, and that and that's true. And so I think I'll just uh, I'll just briefly mention this that uh, I think that we have you. I did not see a sign in the sky when I decided to to make this my life. Sure. Um, 
But if someone asked me, did you feel called? I would say yes. And I can't explain why. But for some reason, when I made up my mind, I, the night I made up my mind, I was going to turn down my PhDs in chemistry and I was going to do this. Mm-hmm. I knew I didn't have another choice. Sure. I knew, and I tell people that with, if they're thinking about going to seminary, if there's anything else you could ever see yourself do, you, you should, should do that. Do that thing. It'll be great. Right. Uh, I do. I, and I, so I do feel, to, I mean, I can say with as much humility as I can muster that I feel God's called me to be a shepherd for his people. And I don't know what that means, and I know I know a component of that. Is that a deacon? Is that an overseer? Is right. that a bishop? A, a, a <laughs> what does that A component of that was me developing my knowledge, right, and sure. me trying to convey that to other people, right, sure. in order to have a mature faith. But I think that that the again, just to, to frame a lot of this discussion, God does call people. God has called people, and He's given shepherds for His people. And the most important thing we can do as a church, I think. Well, besides glorify God, is discern who the shepherds are because when we put bad shepherds in, oh man, um, be so slow. Let's, let's, just yeah. run, let's just run through a few uh, a few of these uh, schisms. So we talked a lot about uh, five hundred uh, in the Chalcedonian schism last time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to just run through some of the other major schisms we've had? Sure. So um, I will say so the reason we're talking about these schisms, by the way, is a lot of these uh, a lot of the breaks haven't been about church government, but they've different forms of church government have, have developed along these breaks, right? Yeah, so um, basically the early church, um, from about 50 to uh, 150, um, you've basically got people that were hanging out with Jesus, the, the apostles, and then you've got people that were trained by the apostles. So you've got like um, Clement is one of the guys, you've got um, this book called the Didache, um, and that's what, they, and, uh, they had low um, leadership. Um, so like the, uh, low well, that's, Episcopal, that's, it's, but then it de- seems to be, yeah, it depends. So it's, so for example, a, a great example, by the way, is this guy, Polycarp. I mentioned Polycarp before. So great. I love Polycarp. It's one of the great. Polycarp studied, you know, probably studied like directly under John, right? So you're talking about like a guy that's like one removed. Um, it seems like there was probably one leader over all of the churches in a city. Sure. Now, it's not entirely clear if that's true in a place in a big city with lots of churches, but it seems like most churches, there are pro- most cities, there's probably more than one house church, and one person was in charge of all of those people. That's the best we can, that may or may not be the case it was, that's kind of the best I think most people can reconstruct. And well then, um, basically the, the problem that my church is seeing now is you've got multiple um, house churches, meaning in a, in a city, and then there's multiple um, like large gatherings, and so you've got a leader over one gathering, a leader over another gathering, and then who's leading the leaders um, in a region? You start having bishops um, show up as a distinct thing from elders or or priests, um, and so that's like a moderate um, episcopy or episcopal model, and that's around six hundred with like Ignatius, Polycarp, where you have theologians or apologists showing up saying, "Hey, oh, he's the we're listening to this guy." So just to be sorry, this is this is because it's by kind of my error. Sorry. So Ignatius of Polycarp, by the way, you mentioned is second century. So you're talking about two hundred. Uh-huh. So the word bishops is pulling is showing up uh, as far as a person in an individual city. As far as bishops over whole regions, that's showing up about a century later. So by about three hundred, you're starting to see bishops over regions. Now there's two ways of looking at this. One is to say three hundred is a long time after Jesus. We should be suspicious of this. 
another way of looking at this, the church has been around for two millennia. Three three hundreds is pretty early. We should probably be fairly trusting of things that happened early, right? Then those are kind of sure. some of the debates about how well, you look. And at it's that. totally changing size and geographically. So there's way right. more people. There's way more languages. There's way more geographic right. area. Well, and so just to give you an example of this, so. Uh, there's a guy, uh, Rodney Stark, I believe his name, out of... Not Tony uh, Stark, are you sure? Out of uh, Baylor, who, he wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity, and so he actually, he modeled, uh, he calculated a 4% growth rate for Christianity uh, in the early century. So he actually said, okay, if you start with 20-some people in an upper room, and you do a 4% growth rate, what you actually see by the time you get to Constantine is that like 52% of the, of the Roman Empire would be Christian. And so Constantine then would not have created Christendom. He would be a response to a vast Christianization over two, three, two hundred years, right? Well, and right. so the church obviously has to respond to going from twenty people to half of an empire, right? That's a really big difference. Yeah, it's it's this the challenges and the needs are totally different based on people who are all hanging out with Jesus for years. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's no question what we should do when there's only a uh, hundred people who had, were hanging out with Jesus versus there's thousands of people that have never heard Jesus talk who are illiterate and can't read the Gospels. It's just right. a totally different scenario. But then um, at 600, there's a schism. And basically what happens is you've got um, an archbishop, like a, a king over bishops now. So you've got like deacons that are helping out. You've got priests um, or elders um, leading in different er- in different churches. You have bishops over like a region or city, and then you've got archbishops that are like, this is what we are all doing. And then there's a huge schism in about mm-hmm. 600 AD. Um, and that goes the Eastern, the Oriental Church, the Western, the Roman Church. And then that basically goes on as a super broad summary to the Reformation in the 1500s. Right. So that, that, that break between the Eastern, so between the, the East would be the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek speaking, what's what we're called the Greek Church, and the Western Latin Church would be uh, 1054, um, would be the, that break. Uh, and so it's significant there is that basically, if you founded a church, so let's say that, let's say I lived in, let's, let's use U.S. terms, let's say that I was in Texas, right? Ooh. And if I go, if I Good were in Texas you. and I went down uh, and I went up to Oklahoma and I founded the first churches in Oklahoma, then Oklahoma would kind of be under my uh, protection until such a time as it was deemed worthy of being able to be on its own. This rule is still in place, for instance, which is why actually the uh, Diocese of Orlando is technically has spiritual control over the moon. The moon? Because the, the mission, <laughs> the mission to colonize the moon authority over the Orlando. Moon. So the spiritual, oh the, the spiritual goodness. well-being of the moon is actually well, under there's the no people, of There's no people on. So whenever they go to, back, they're right, like, well, it would be a, <laughs> we've got a conflict on the uh, the landing module. Uh, let's call in the bishop from Orlando. <laughs> so what's important for this is that uh, is that the, the church out of Rome basically sent the missionaries to all of Europe. And so sure. when the break happened in 1054, basically you were left with one bishop, the bishop of Rome, uh, that was it. That was spiritually in charge of all of the churches, and also because there had just been the collapse of the Roman Empire and all of this, they were all kind of struggling, and so Rome became basically responsible to embrace the entirety of Europe. Sure, and well, um, just to be clear, we are grossly oversimplifying things. Uh, I mean, just just hang with us. But uh, long story long, it's important because one, 
Jesus is showing up and Jesus is saying, hey, you who are in charge, I put you in charge. How did you take care of the sheep? And so if God is going to hold me accountable for organizing and structuring how a thousand people connect into a small group in two weeks, I need to know that. But if mm-hmm. God has charged someone else with that, I need to know that. And so that's where if if we're operating as if um, the Pope is in charge of everything, ultimately it fall, he has the weight of the world on his shoulders or the, the Latin-speaking world. He needs to be aware what what he, we, as far as we can tell, Christ is holding him accountable to. But at the same time, I need to know who to trust um, compared to a random schmuck uh, down the yeah. road. And so it goes both it goes both ways. But then right. uh basically the reformation in the 1500s uh, uh I mean people start leaving off the uh um um the Roman Catholic Church and then you have um the enlightenment and postmodernism in the, the 1700s I'd say that introduces a lot of the independent church idea. What do you think? Is that a like we're not Yeah, so I would say a a, a good and we'll come back to some of this, but in the Reformation, you have proceeding to this what's called the con- the conciliatory movement. So basically, there was a time when there were like there were three popes, right? And the pope, uh, there were some times when the popes were just not good shepherds. And so, what people introduced was this idea that uh, the ultimate authority didn't lie in the pope; it let it lie in a church council. Hmm. And actually, you're gonna you're gonna see this in some of the Reformation polities. Uh, it the idea of like the ultimate the spiritual authority lying in councils. Uh, and then what you, we're just going to have later in the, the 1800s is a revivalism uh, in the sense of a calling of individuals to personally, uh, personally giving their life over to God, which is going to lead to a, towards a lot more of the independent movement, um, this sort of revivalism and emphasis on individual congregations. Sure. And there's a lot of philosophical, theological reasons that we could we could talk about that. I think I think are you okay with me just saying that is yeah. So there's there's the brief overview, uh, and so what we're actually going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we're going to tackle some other fun topics, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, some of these different uh, ways of church order and why it might matter to you. Welcome back. I hope it was a lovely break. Um, so we've given a super brief overview of church uh, growth, early growth in the first hundred years, first couple hundred years, and how you basically started having a hierarchy that was kind of like a traditional hierarchy, like a pyramid scheme. Um, and at the top was a bishop or archbishop. Um, and then you had, under the bishops, you had elders or priests, depending on where you were at. And then under the priests, the region or the local church would be deacons to help out with the stacking of chairs or whatever needed to happen. Um, but then with every schism, with every separation, the people are like, okay, well, what do we want to do? And so you've got a couple different, I think three different forms, I think we can say, Ian. Um, let me know what you think. You've got Episcopal structure. Um, so you've got like a... a basically a pyramid of order. It's like the Roman Catholic, the Greek Orthodox, the Anglican, Episcopalian, Methodist, some Lutherans. Um, You have Presbyterian. So basically you've got like elders um, 
at a location, like a Reformed church might have. Um, we don't submit to a, a bishop over a region, but we have an el- elder team. And then you've got congregational, um, which is basically we vote. Um, and that's independents, that's Baptist, that's Plymouth Brethren. I think we fall into that category. Um, so three main ways of organizing churches in the modern era. What do you think? Did you, is that, is that oversimplified too much or? Yeah. So I think, I think the only one I would add in there is there's a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a distinction, which what are going to be called, I'm going to call conventions. Ooh, conventions. And so some of the churches have conventions. Uh, so if you can imagine a spectrum, a spectrum on one side would be an independent church where every church, uh, does their own thing. And if you say, what do you think about the church down the street? They're like, church down the street? I don't think there is a church down the street. We just do our own thing, right? And so that would be the one end, right? And the other end would be a complete hierarchy where there's the one supreme potentate sitting on a throne uh, and say, you know, and, and dictating to all every single Christian everywhere what to do. Right? I don't, neither of those two things exist, right? But if you were to imagine that as, as a spectrum. Uh, so I have, some, I have some examples here. So an in, independent church a more would be kind of like people at the beach. Right, so like I'm at the beach. Rob Bell literally fits into this category. He's well, sure. he's worshiping on his surfboard out in California when he. Well, so that, that's not, not quite what I mean. But so I so I went down to Lake Ontario today. So I, I had came up with this example. So like I'm at the beach, and all of us are here. We're all here at the beach, right? We're all here doing a common thing. But I'm a person, and you're a person. Like all of us are separate entities, and we're all kind of here doing the same thing. But at the end of the day, all of us are not super connected right sure uh and then you have a convention which would be like a like an amateur sports team right and in an amateur sports team like everybody's their own person um but you're all kind of gathered together in order to share resources and share some knowledge and come together for a certain task right i can leave whenever i want to um yeah sort of. that kind of thing and that would be that would be the idea of like a convention so you're of your the, the most popular with conventions would be uh, Baptist, right? So Baptist. Oh, yeah. The Southern Baptist Convention. I'm here because I want to be here. I can leave any time. No big deal. Right. Well, not, maybe not quite. There's actually some interesting things that I will come back to. Uh, and then the next would be kind of a would be conciliatory. So we talked about this before, but conciliatory uh, movements feel that uh, God directs his church primary when all the leaders of the church get together. So this would be, for instance, like a Presbyterianism would be a form of conciliatorism. Uh, Orthodoxy is actually kind of between this and the next one. Um, but I, so the best I can kind of say would be maybe like a um, like a union, like a meeting of unions. If like, you know, all of the leaders uh, from like different, maybe like a Congress, let's say like a Congress, right? Where all the leaders of the different states. Oh, state yeah. They declare war. Like, we're going to war. That's what's happening. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, like all of us are over our own things with our own concerns, but the biggest thing is when we all come together and make decisions. And then the next one would be an, an Episcopal, uh, which would be something more along the lines of like uh, like an ex- maybe a, a, a hierarchy of executives, right? So like you're in charge of these, you're in charge of these five people, and those five people are in charge of these two people. You wouldn't say just like a kingdom where I'm the king kind of situation? Uh, I, I think – so I think I want to be careful because the the Eastern churches would be considered Episcopal too, but, I, but their form of Episcopalism is, is a little bit different. I think that that's probably uh, – tr- your statement is probably true for at least Western Episcopalism. I'll take it. Like. I'll take it. Well, um, well so uh, you and I find – well, I am in a – so we're not in an Episcopal environment, you or I. I'm in a, well, I am. 
so you're in a so you're in Presbyterian church, is that right? Well, so I I'm at an, an Anglican seminary, so I have like one foot in a Presbyterian world. Oh, that's interesting. So I grew up I grew up independent mm-hmm. uh, Bible churches. Yeah, right? I knew that. I went for a semester to a Southern Baptist seminary. Uh, which is convention at the moment, and then at the moment I have one foot in the Episcopal world and one foot in the uh, in the Presbyterian world, and I hang out with a lot of Catholics, so I get all of the Catholics side. So uh, your church, so you're going to um, school in an Anglican school, but your church, would you say, is that Presbyterian? The church is uh, Presbyterian, yes. And that's they do they submit to a, an, a higher archi- or organizational um order or yeah. so, so the way that the presbyterian and so i'm not an expert of presbyterian polity polity by the way the word i keep using is just the word we talked about for how churches govern themselves in the larger sense um and so uh presbyterians uh think that the elders rule the church and so uh you will have a synod and then a, so a synod is basically a uh where the elders from your different churches will come together and meet and have a discussion about what you should do for your area. And then there's a general assembly where representatives from each of the, from each of the synods will come and, and have a, so those decisions which are made at uh, assemblies and synods are binding on all Presbyterian churches. Oh, really? They submit to that. So it's, but that's not like there's a chief leader. It's, um, we are right. all so equal. There, so there's no Archbishop of Glasgow, okay. for instance. Uh, the, the This is what makes it a conciliatory movement, is that the power, is that there is authority over the whole church only when leaders from all of the representative churches of the area come together and discuss and make the decision. That's interesting. Yeah, there's, there's uh, and so that's there. a little bit distinct from, uh, so I believe uh, you're in a church. Did, did your church uh, send delegates to conventions, by the way? No, we don't. We, uh, it's, it is, we, we are, uh, I believe we're, oh, what is it? Uh, I believe we're Plymouth Brethren Backgrounds. Okay. Um, Which make you, yeah. But, uh, so, and we, we send like $100 to the Southern Baptist Convention or something once a year. And so we have access to a couple different things, um, but uh, basically we're an independent Baptist church. Basically, okay. Well, let me talk about a convention real fast. <clears throat> sure. A, and I'm going to talk about Southern Baptist Convention sure. just because that's the one I'm most familiar with. This does extend to other conventions. The purpose of a convention is not is that so conventions pass resolutions, but they don't pass. Uh, they pass basically general. This is what we we generally say, and and points of action, but they don't have. Uh, they don't have authority over individual churches because they emphasize the autonomy of the church. And so the purpose of conventions is largely for pooling of resources uh, and to have shared projects. So the Southern Baptist Convention, I think, is actually really good at this. Uh, the International Missions Board is amazing if you want to be a, if you are interested in being a missionary in your Southern Baptist, right? It's, the process is way easier. It's the only because, way. Because they have just a ton of funding for their missions, and they have an entire publishing arm and Lifeway Publishing which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist, right? So it's the sort of things, an independent church can't have a publishing arm, so all the churches got to, got together. It's like, well, it's published books by our people, right? So that's the purpose of a convention. Um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, every church gets to send two delegates if they want, and then basically if you contribute more to the convention in different ways, either financially or through service, you get to send more delegates, basically. Hmm. Um 
but they passed things like resolution. So this is actually interesting. If you search for uh, 2019 SPC annual meeting, you can see the resolutions. So, for instance, they actually they actually passed a resolution this year, which I thought was interesting on local church autonomy and accountability. Hmm. Um, this is interesting because they uh, they basically say that um, we have done a poor job of policing our shepherds. Uh, so we need to do better about that, and we need to trust other churches that if they uh, let go of a shepherd, that it might be for a good reason. But we still hold that God let that God holds each church to be autonomous, and so that's kind of the, I the think basis that's, of like a that was based on the uh, all the sex abuse scandals that have come out. <laughs> and it so is, the, yeah. they're saying, hey, uh, we can't tell the church not to hire somebody or to hire somebody. Yeah. Uh, but if somebody was let go, uh, right. <laughs> it's probably right. for a good reason. And so what you see them struggling with, by the way, is the connection between churches, right? Baptists, for instance, can affirm self-ruled churches, right? Mm-hmm. Churches have the right that ultimately are responsible for their own ruling. And you can get together to advise one another, but you're not responsible for ruling other people's churches, and you're not obligated to follow the ruling from other entities, right? You're responsible for your church. Yeah. Um, but I do think that they've made a really helpful resolution this year, uh, basically stating that that's, that self-rule is not a uh, is not an, an excuse to just ignore the rest of the church. I think has been is a good step. So I think that's I think it's great, but so. You and I grew up in a uh, an independent or like uh, not maybe not congregational, but certainly an independent. Was was yours in congregational? So mine would be congregational, right? In the, in different degrees. So congregational would be uh, that decisions in the church are made by congregational vote. Um, and so all of my churches that were a little bit different. But for instance, if we wanted to, whenever we wanted to hire a new pastor, it always went to a vote of the congregation. Uh, the pastors and elders couldn't just decide to do that. They had to go to a vote. Now, it was that one church that was more extreme. They're like, we voted on carpet, right? Like, Literally on the carpet? the carpet? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about boring for a kid growing up. Be like, oh, my goodness. Are we really here talking about carpet? Like, right. come on. But uh, so uh, with that, though, like we talked about the Southern Baptist Convention having a publishing arm. Um, there, I mean, there are people that are more uh, winsome teachers, maybe, is that a way to put it? Um, but there certainly are other resources that the church has to lean on that doesn't come from that individual church. Maybe it doesn't have to lean on, but practically churches, right. uh, congregational well, independent churches do lean on them, and they have a and ton an, of influence. Right, and that's an important point. The truly independent church, as far as I'm concerned, might as well be dead. Uh, for one thing, most of them are joining networks, right? And as much as they want to call them networks and not conventions or denominations, they, they are, right? They're pooling together of common, independent, autonomous entities to share resources and develop projects. Sure. That's sure. a denomination. That's a convention, right? The, the Gospel Coalition and the Acts 29 and the For the City or whatever, all of these networks are just... Vineyard, uh, all the things. Right, and even if you're not... A part of those networks, normally you're probably using curriculum from one of those networks, right? Like that, some church of that network has developed a kid's curriculum and you buy into it and you use it, right? And so in some sense, you're kind of de facto a part of that network. Sure. So, and uh, so I, there was just I recently – oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so I do think it's, it's helpful that as much 
the truly, I think the world is just too interconnected now that the truly independent church is basically a thing of the past. I mean, because uh, in the past, it was the idea of I am like Plymouth Brethren. I have showed up to a new world, the new world. And that's the place you never do. I will never, I may sometime again in my life talk to someone that isn't from this village that got yeah. off the boat with me. Like, can, can I can I say something with that yeah. real fast? I know you're about to say something, but that is actually at the heart. And I think that is the kernel that is really important in the independent church movement. And I think that as much as it's easy to maybe lambast independent church and pretend like they don't care about being part of the global body, the concern that as of a legitimate concern is that should a person uh, – so for instance, the, the congregational movement in the early United States was – is it legitimate for some – bishop in canterbury who's never been here to tell us what we should do and i think that's you know it should a person who is in a different community in a different city and not really acquainted with our church should should they be able to tell us what to do and i think that's actually a valid concern right that that there's some sense that each church is this is part of the fact that the church is modeled on Christ and Christ incarnated himself into the world, right? Each church is incarnated in a sense, tabernacles in a particular locality and has to pick up the concerns and the difficulties and the struggles and the sin of that locality, right? And so there's a certain amount that, that each church has to be responsible for how it responds to the situation it's in, right? And it's not always as easy as some person. It's wait a couple months know. for some other bishop in another continent. Yeah, it's right. kind of like, uh, I mean, literally, it's as obnoxious as if when Neil Armstrong uh, lands on the moon and has like a con- an irre- you know an irreconcilable conflict with an with maybe his pilot um, or his I don't know his quartermaster, whoever whatever the title or is, the, the bishop of Orlando. Yeah, with, and you're like. Okay, we're going to wait for the Bishop of Orlando, who's 75, has never been to space or the moon, to tell... I mean, it's like, there comes a point where it's like, hey, it's helpful to listen to this person because he's a wise person, but... Uh, what? (laughs) It just seems very bizarre for Neil not to get his group together and make a decision. Sure. Um, Well, so, uh, it gets... So, it does get kind of weird, and we've talked about how you and I and and the the church is in a culturally... you know, certainly postmodern and careening more and more postmodern environment to where the world is changing. And so we don't have iso- – like the idea of an isolated church is kind of a silly idea. Like you're literally talking about the moon, the, the moon church. Who's the bishop well, over the moon? I don't think that, that that is true for much of the world, right? So for instance, I I spent an afternoon uh, with two families in T- Tajikistan which they're the old, they're the two believing families in this village, right? Uh-huh. And so they're the church in that village, right? And they're not really connected to anybody else. Well, you were there. Uh, and, well, yeah, so they get to see, but but yeah, so like, but for most of the Western world, right, if you're trying really hard to be completely independent, you may need to think about your church's priorities, right? You're probably not as independent as you would like to say, but, um, but so like with, with you and I, uh, you were talking about how there was an author that had a big influence on you, uh, a spiritual influence on you, whatever that means, and then recently came out and was like, oh, well, actually, I was wrong, and uh, boom, I'm not a Christian anymore. See you later. And it's just him and his Twitter profile or his Instagram profile, and you're right. like, well, what so is be, happening? To be fair, 
so we're talking about Joshua Harris here. Uh, Joshua Harris has had zero intellectual influence on me, uh, besides me defining things that I th- things that I make fun of. And uh, so I, did he's you had read he has influenced the churches we were part of. He has, yes. So he uh, has had influence on that. Us. That is true. He is not. I, did you ever read any of his books? I read. Uh, uh, I mean, excerpts and of "I Kiss Dating Goodbye." I mean, I don't know that I ever read it cover to cover. I don't know if I read anything cover to cover as a, until I got into. Well, I've I've never read anything <laughs> cover to cover. Don't, don't lie right there. I, I I I read books with you in seminary, and I, like I know it. for sure that you did not read most of them cover to cover. I mean, if you can't tell me in the first paragraph what you're most excited about in this book that you just wrote for me to read, then you're not that excited, and the book's not that good. So, I mean, come on. Um, I did read. Uh, I did read a little bit. Uh, I skimmed through. I gave dating a chance because somebody in college really told me I should. I didn't find it that interesting. Uh, dating or the book? I'm sorry? <laughs> dating or the book? <laughs> well, not, yeah. Well, no comment. <laughs> well, so what, so, uh, so what, so did he have, I think, I think we have to say this man had authority over huge parts of the English speaking Western church. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not anyone laid hands on him, so to speak, as a, as an elder or a leader or a whatever, I don't know that it ever happened, but I mean, he was over a church, but he affected way more churches than church elders or bishops or popes said, Hey, read this guy's book. Like a pope or a bishop or whatever did not give up authority to this guy, but this guy had influence over him. Yeah, sure. So what, I mean, is this a new model of leadership where it's kind of like a, tribal holocratic organic church leadership or is it just uh well there it is that's there are there's white noise everywhere uh so uh let me rephrase this um we're talking about leadership and order in the church um i literally tuesday we had a staff meeting and one of the lead pastors said hey you probably shouldn't listen to any other pastors other than your pastor if there's something being preached on Sunday, listen to that, do that. Once you've done whatever that is, then start listening to other sermons. Then start listening to, to podcasts or blogs. Um, I mean, I've got a podcast that I hope is helpful to somebody. So, I mean, I don't fully buy into that. But this guy, he wrote a book and it was influential over thousands of churches. Right. Well, it's yeah, it certainly influenced how thousands of people who were youths in the 90s viewed uh, like sexuality and relationships. Sure. So at least three times over as he kept revising his mind <laughs> and still and didn't did again, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, as church leaders, I mean, our, our responsibility is to, well, the responsibility of a church is to um, help equip the church to do the work of the ministry. Um, and I think there's a place to say, Hey, we've got people that can help us do that better for certain areas they may not know this flock, but they can help bring some truths to light that would be helpful. But at the same time, there comes a place where it can be super unhelpful. Well, the, the trick is that there's there's so many voices out there, right? There's so many voices telling you what you should think uh, and what you should, you know, what your church should be doing, right? That there's a certain point where you have to kind of filter, right? You know, so I've been doing some Excel work recently for work. And I get these huge tables, right? And you just have to like, okay, sort, filter, 
U.S. only, right? And there's some points you just have to like you. I can't listen to everybody, and who so I'm going to listen to the people out of my tradition, for instance, hmm. um, or who who or. But the reality is that for a lot of the uh, the evangelical church, at least, uh, that filter has been I'm going to filter by who sold the most books in like in uh, family Christian bookstores, right? Which is probably not we've learned a great way to filter out uh who who should we should listen to right so where ideas come from. that sounds like the the fake news thing so like if i have google google's going to show me uh more conservative than liberal news or it's going to mm-hmm. show it to me from a more conservative slant so the in a lot of ways that you're it sounds like you're saying there's an analogy here with fake news <laughs> fake fake theology that's what this right. is but so also well, this actually leads, I think, to one of the big downfalls of a more independent or convention, um, at least a more independent model for church. And we talked about some of the uh, some of the benefits of that, right? But the downside is that uh, do you lose the prophetic nature of your ministry, right? Because if are you able to just kind of filter out uh, down to either you end up with voices, you end up building your foundation on shepherds that are bad shepherds. Or you filtered out any voices that might be different, uh, maybe not actively, right? It's so like an echo chamber, just, a theological right. echo chamber. No one's challenging you ever. Right. I've been in theological settings where everybody claps about stuff that I <laughs> don't think you should clap <laughs> like, for. Uh, like I'm like, really? that's wrong. But I don't have any – but they've, they've kind of built a system where it's an echo chamber, right? So the that's people interesting. who uh, – and so that is the, that is the, the challenge of – emphasizing autonomy right is you do have somebody that can challenge you or are you just going to pick up a book and read it and be like oh this is great because it it validates everything you already thought about the way the world works right and then 20 years from now um the guy goes off the deep end i mean this time i i was i really liked um i really liked a lot of velvet elvis and Um, rob bell right rob bell right so i used to listen to rob bell sermons and i actually think that i think velvet elvis from rob bell got a bit of a bad rap i think if you really analyze his argument um i would i think it actually was a was a fairly nuanced argument and i think he wrote another book which i thought was um was still pretty good too but then you just kind of you kind of saw the spiral starting to happen right you just kind of felt it loosening up and this really happened with a lot of the emergent church movement, right? Uh, and so if, if I had built – if I didn't have somebody challenging me along the way, right, when I was built – when I was picking up these things and like, oh, this is interesting, um, you know, you, you end up maybe kind of building your whole um, way of viewing the world maybe on, on uh, people who end up leading you astray, right, who end up going off the deep end or uh, you just never get challenged. And you need the challenge of churches in different settings. Um, so let's let's move maybe from here on to something like a like a conciliatory sort of view, right? So something like a Presbyterian. Um, so your your church is an interesting situation, right? Because in some sense you're like a whole denomination, yeah, all wrapped up into one church, right? But on the other hand, all of your situate all of your church operates kind of one way, right? You're a mega church. You're a mega church in one metropolis, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have voices in your church. And I, I don't want to be careful because I'm not going to ask you to criticize your church. Uh, well, so I, I would say we do have uh, um, really close partnerships with the church uh, in Haiti. Uh, 
and then we do have um, really close ties with the church in France, and we do but, now. Have... But does that church in Haiti have any authority over you? Could the church in Haiti mm, yeah. say, "Hey, Hope, you know, Hope Community Church, we think that you're not doing this well." And so a partnership for me, and we're going to come back to the idea of mission a little bit later, but a partnership and mission is not the same thing as authority and saying, this is what we're going to believe. This is how we're going to articulate it. This is what we're going to do. Well, so um, I I think there is uh, in a sense, um, and I think we can talk about that in a little bit, but uh, I, I mean, I feel like it's, it is not quite as whitewashed as it could be. And um, we have a Spanish speaking service. Um, so it's not as extreme, so it's on the spectrum, but it's, uh, um, it is a really unique situation. I will absolutely agree to that. Right. Well, I I do think it is, um, I mean, I'm not going to challenge your church specifically. I do think it is the challenge of the mega church in the sense that you can be self-sufficient because you can be self-sufficient in some ways you have a foot in both worlds, right? In some ways you look a little bit like a presbyterian right because you your inner structure is kind of like a presbytery right but mm-hmm. your geographic reach is so small and uh, that you don't have the pl- the plethora of voices um that you get in something like an actual presbyterian model right where you actually have churches in radically different you might even have to have you know blue and red churches all in the same synod together, right? God forbid, and try to figure out what to do with that, right? Or if you're up here, Tory and, I don't know, the other, uh, NDP? NDP? Anyways. Um, well, our geographic to... cultural reach is really narrow, but our density is super high. So, like, we probably have 40,000 people um, who would say, right. oh, yeah, I go to that church. That is a huge uh uh amount of opinions <laughs> i guess but they're not mm-hmm. as extreme because it's all the, a similar culture it's all in mm-hmm. the deep south you know it's all in um as one state it's all in one city of one state um right. it's all in one language let me ask you a twofold question do you think one church should be able to have any sort of authority over another church even if it, if it's based on agreement so let's say if it's based on agreement and is there any advantage, or what is the advantage of doing it based on the agreement of the leaders versus another way of having that authority? I think, uh, I mean, what's the phrase? It's so, I mean, it's it's on everybody's um, doctrine or theological statements um, in matters of um, faith and practice. Yeah. Well, no, it's the, we have unity, um, liberty, and matters charity, or whatever the. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. In essential matters, we have unity, and non-essentials, we have liberty, and in in the gray area, we show each other grace. Basically, um, I think uh, th- it's important to as Christians to submit to one another, and I think it's easy sure. to to say um, with the celebrity mindset and the organic, like, well, forty thousand people call this church their home, but are there more than three thousand members that are actually, you know, that kind of thing, like. Who's the core? Like, who are we pointing to? And I think when it comes to who, where the buck stops with those leaders, when those leaders step out of God's will for them as individuals or leaders in their in their service of the church, I think we have to mutually submit to one another. Um, and I think especially in elements of um, like core doctrinal elements, 
hey, that, mm-hmm. or even just simple things like that was not God's best for you. Right. And it's not, we don't need to talk about it, pray about it. There's chapter and verse to say, that wasn't kind. Like the way you're talking, the way you're writing is not kind. Someone needs to come out and say, you as an individual, you as a church, that's inappropriate. So I, I, I think absolutely. Um, right. But I don't think a church of 15 down the road should, like if their pastor walks up to the pastor of a church of 30,000, they should say, well, I'm a pastor of three. I, sh- I should have a voice. I, you should have a voice as a Christian. I don't know that you necessarily, you could be a cult. You know, like, I, just because you call yourself a church, that doesn't mean that you should have authority. Just like whatever author doesn't necessarily have authority over a church. Sure, right. So the reason you just stated is, is the reason why most churches that have this sort of church government are confessional churches, meaning that, that in order to join, you have to agree to a certain confession of mm-hmm. faith. So if you're Presbyterian Church of America, for instance, you have to hold to the threefold the threefold three confession of, uni- of unity. Um, I, I do think it's important to point out the reason why I think this is this is needed is for two two reasons. One of them is Romans chapter 1, where it talks that people, when their hearts are darkened, they invented new ways of doing evil. Uh, and the reality is that humanity invents new ways of doing evil, which means that the church's work is never done. We're constantly being faced with new situations um, in order that we have to respond to, right? And having to discern, is this a new form of evil or is this something that should be accepted, right? And so the work is always having to be done because of that ex- precise point, right? And I think the other point is this: is the fact that uh, I hold to the a view that philosophically you have a moral responsibility to maximize true uh, true belief claims so what that means is that morally that you is your moral obligation to believe as many true things as possible and so if the church is a <laughs> don't moral believe lies <laughs> yeah and so the church is the moral obligation to believe as many true things as possible that's why we're always in need of refining and sharpening one another and sharpening ideas just to make sure because uh i don't believe that progress is always a good thing but but as the history progresses there are new things we learn about God's world, right? And so we always have to be resharpening our ideas to make sure that, we're, that we are maximizing the number of true things that we believe and true things that we say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think something like um, a conciliatory movement is helpful. Something like a Presbyterian polity uh, is is a helpful thing because it puts it binds churches together in a mutual sort of a submission. Um, but it puts that responsibility across all of her shepherds and across all of her elders, sure. which I think is helpful. Is just, And that's not, again, to be denigrating to Joe Schmo on, on this, the sidewalk, but, like he, but, but God, I think that God's put a particular responsibility on this on the elders. Sure. Well, and I mean, you have a, uh, like the Pope is not literally, I'm the king when I say goes, it's he's a chief among equals is kind of the idea. Uh, yeah, that, that's at least the, yeah. So you you brought the Pope. Let's let's move all fast into something like an Episcopal, right? So an Episcopal uh, view puts put it's the same sort of idea as the conciliatory views, but it puts that final authority in an individual servant that it trusts God to direct, as opposed to in. And that's not to say it's one person and all the schmucks, right? It's it's all it, it's a whole hierarchy, right? But it's it tends to put that authority into individuals it trusts to follow the spirit as opposed to 
groups, right? Sure. I mean, so what sort of benefit is there in that, do you think? If there's not shared responsibility, um, you've got a clarity of roles, um, and you can do you can make decisions really quick. Um, but I mean, I mean, just speaking from a like a secular perspective, the speed of decisions is significant, but also collaborating on decisions is significant because you get other perspectives that are helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And you can. It's certainly a more efficient model than like a Presbyterian model. Sure. Um, not as efficient as a well, well, maybe or maybe not as efficient as like an independent model, right? Depends on how much you brainwash your people. Sure, um, and I think there's also an element of um, control. Higher control has higher um, cost control. Like you can spend money where you want it to go, but you're not necessarily as agile as you might be, um, yeah. and that's going to change. I mean, based on your organization, and then um, it's going to be tough to innovate. Uh, new ideas if you're making decisions all the time, but you can focus the energy on what from that one leader's perspective um, the energy needs to go. So the quality of the product is awesome, but if you want to, if there's things that we, hey, what about this? We're not talking about that. <laughs> um, it's really hard to get sure. grassroots ideas and just to, hey, let's try it out. Everyone try it, whatever you want. And that's decentralized power. Um, so it is important to mention that the the primary point of contention in the Episcopal model is the authority of the church. And what so on what basis can the church say, thus saith the Lord? An Episcopal model is in most cases built around the idea that authority comes from an apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. God gave the authority, gave the keys to the kingdom to the apostles. Now the Roman Catholics would say he gave them to Peter and to the apostles. Uh, like an Anglican, for instance, or would say he gave them to the apostles, right? And the apostles, there's been a continuous, so it's not as much that like John baptized Polycarp, Polycarp baptized this guy, and this guy all the way down to me. Like, that's not quite the idea, but rather the, uh, so John baptized Polycarp, and Polycarp established this church, right? And this is the church and has a connection back. And the authority of Christ was in the church of Smyrna based on its connection to the apostles, right? And then the Church of Smyrna planted a church down the road, and that derived. So it's like this this crisscrossing out of these like vines, right? That all draw back to the authority of the apostles. And so, whether or not you're going to feel that 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 it's useful, it's a, it's a, it's going to come down to whether or not you feel like that's legitimate. And that's a huge topic to get into. We probably can't tackle it. We cannot. Uh, I'm we calling cannot. it. <laughs> but it is it is important to know that what's what's at stake there is it. If you take that away, if you don't necessarily have an organic connection, so for instance, if I were to go be uh, be ordained in the Anglican Church, I would have my lands laid on me, and they would believe that they, by a person that who has the authority of the apostles, the authority of the apostles would be put upon me. So when I get up to preach, I preach with the authority of the apostles because it's been given to the church to pass that down specifically to her leaders. And so, like at right. at our church, if if you want to be a leader of a small group, um, you have to agree um, to um, the social issues that hope holds to. The, uh, mm-hmm. Like we say, are you willing to live a lifestyle in accordance with biblical principles? Well, mm-hmm. what are what does it mean to do that according to biblical principles? Right. Well, well it's every how person, we interpret right. what the Bible well, says. And every person has said yes to that they agree to something when in their head they're thinking, 
in my interpretation. In my interpretation. Right? So like every heretic, every classic heretic was reading the Bible. And it was their interpretation mm-hmm. of what the verses said that was right, right or wrong. And so right. that's it's, a huge issue. It is, yeah. And it is very it is much harder to derive the authority of the church church leaders if you don't have an apostolic succession, right? When I get up so I'm gonna be doing my brother's wedding in October, right? When I get up and do his wedding, if I uh, believe in apostolic succession, I can say, I marry you, and I have it by the authority of the apostles. I can make this proclamation. This covenant has been made between you and God because I have the authority to say yeah, that. Yeah, I speak right? for God. If I don't have the authority, if I don't believe in apostolic succession, well, then it's like, it, this comes back to that, that, that discussion of authority. Like, how do I represent the church? Do I represent it because I have a degree? Do I represent it because I think I do? And it it becomes a lot harder to um to explain the authority of your shepherds, and it also is actually a very helpful because you can actually uh, you can you can say that God's power goes even through bad shepherds because there's something special about them as a channel, right? Um, that they don't have to be. Whereas if a person if you, if you don't believe in apostolic succession, if a person um, turns out doesn't that they don't have good character well well that and cast a bad nobody one? has flawless character either. right so you're like Ugh. i just i mean so i think in uh, people that aren't in episcopal settings i think tend to uh, kind of poo-poo on the on the episcopos right uh on the idea of on the the idea of bishops and all of that what do you mean you have a bishop um but I do think that they, they, it is a very legitimate question that kind of it's developed out of. Now, the other side of that is um, it is much easier to have unity in a church structure if there's not a person that I have to, like, swear loyalty to. Uh, if you're in, like, the Anglican church, for instance, if you become a – if you get a job, you have to some you have to swear your loyalty to follow the bishop. Well, what if the bishop holds to some things that you don't agree with, Right. It's a lot. I think it's a little bit easier to be like, okay, here's our church, and that church down there we don't fully agree with, but we can work together. Versus, I have to swear my loyalty to somebody, and it creates that creates a lot of of, of uh, create a lot of angst. It's interesting, which is currently being seen. If you follow it all, the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church of Canada, or the Anglican Church in general, you will see, or the Catholic Church, you will see a lot of that angst. <laughs> well, if you follow any church, I've often thought that um, there's no mob family movie that couldn't be uh trumped pardon the pun with uh by like a church family movie like you have a, a lot of uh pastor family nepotism a lot of great great drama and it could be it can get ugly it can get ugly so so that's kind of an overview of some of the some of the things going on with maybe your church or other church, let's let's take a couple minutes, Andrew. Let's just talk about developments. You so we talked about one development in church ordering, which is the idea of um, we've actually talked about two. We've talked about seminaries, which is kind of a newer mm-hmm. uh, a newer hurdle, uh, and also the idea of networks. Uh, what are some other things that maybe are developing in church order? If you, if we have any thoughts of them, so I know you mentioned um, when we were talking about this a couple of days ago the idea of like. Churches gathering on missions, right? The kind of the missional sort of view of the church. Uh, how do you think that that's affecting the way we view church ordering? 
Uh, well, so I think there's uh, the way you define what your the church is. Like, what is the mission? Why why are we uniquely here? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what is a unique task that God has given us as a church in this city? There's other churches in the city. Um, we don't all fit in the same building, so we're starting another church. Great. Uh, well, what are we uniquely about that that other church isn't uniquely about? Or are we all just going to be sure. identical? And I think the what your mission and vision, your unique mission and vision is as a church, um, as a local body, is going to affect how you organize. Um, because um, the way you organize is going to affect, um, do we have a like an amazing quality product, whatever that is, or do we innovate and, and are we really nimble with... Um, our product again, if that's just meeting the the needs of a local of a local community, um, do we have clarity of roles, or do are we just like a family thing? Like, just if you see a need, meet a need. Oh, that's not my problem, kind of mentality. Um, mm-hmm. Do we really have a tight button on the the budget, super high accountability, or do we um, have freedom to hey, like at a um, Home Depot, if somebody walks in and says, hey, how much for this, and you're like, oh, it's not marked. Tell you what, fifty bucks. Like you can literally on the spot make a decision. Or if there's a if something's broken or whatever, hey, you know what? I'll give you fifty bucks off on that because it was broken. You don't have to go find a manager. Um, but there's you, there's not clarity for for cost control. And then um, how are decisions made? But I think that's going to affect how you organize your church. If you're not right. um, if you're an independent church or a congregational church, you can do all sorts of stuff to ma- optimize your mission and vision. And that's why I think a lot of these. Um, independent churches have just done so good is because they've recognized their local target demographic and they've optimized, they've streamlined everything to meet that. It is interesting because, I mean, you're right. A lot of churches are organizing themselves and around each other, around the idea of mission, right, of who they want to meet. Uh, And as a former missionary, I, I I think that's great. I'm always concerned in the back of my mind uh, that it creates an external an externally focused church. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard, now go be the church. Go be the church. It's a great service. Go be the church. And so the I mean, the, it's a great commission. It's one of the, the greater commissions for sure. The the picture is kind of like the church is like the huddle, but the purpose of the huddle is just so you can go out and do the play, right? And the, the play is really what matters. The service is really what matters. The mission is really what matters. And it, to me, what I'm worried about is that it denigrates everything that happens within the, the church. The core identity. That there yeah. is a life under church that matters and is a part of the church just as much as the mission. And it always it always makes me wonder, how do we keep from becoming just other NPOs? No, I sometimes think, I, I think worry about great. churches just becoming other NPOs. And so I, I really I like that the church has become uh, it continues the focus of how do we reach the outside world, but it's it I think it is important for us. So it's we're not huddles. The church is not a huddle because it's just as much uh, the life of the church is just as significant as the mission of the church. If you want to go be the church, what you just did in the church service is being the church just as much as you're going to do at a soup kitchen. That's, That's I mean I believe that. That's great. Well, so I think, um, uh, yeah, I think there is, so if you believe that is part of the mission of the church, that will change how you structure your church. If you were like, I'm the sure. king, I can decide whatever I want, this is what we do from now on, um, that's going to modify how you do it. Well, and so there's an interesting thing out of this, and you might be just about to go there, that it's been really fascinating for me to watch my friends that are graduating from seminary 
and are getting having way harder time getting jobs than people that were uh, mid-level managers at uh, businesses. If you're a mid-level, if you want to get a job at a church right now, go be a mid-level manager at a business because bigger churches love hiring people out of the business world. They don't want to hire people out of seminaries. They don't want to hire people that spend four years of their life studying to try to have accurate statements about God. They want to hire people that are efficient at hierarchies. Well, so I do think the organizational needs, the, the needs to help bring order to a much larger um, organization are not, that's not what you get walking out of um, seminary. And right. I think um, it, that's true. I, I mean, mean, that that is I, a reality. That is absolutely. But what's, what it shows, what's interesting is that right now, our churches, at least a lot of our independent, a lot of our churches, I'm, I'm especially bigger ones, are more interested in organization and efficiency than they are anything else. Uh, oh, I don't issue, think that's fair. In some sense, I think a lot of our independent churches and our convention, our Presbyterian churches, are becoming basically internally Episcopal, which is really interesting. It's internal pyramid structures, um, which I think is really, which is really interesting. And so, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that a church that needs eight uh, admin assistants um, and doesn't hire eight pastors instead of admin assistants is Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about the admin service. I, I'm talking about uh, th- there's a trend in hire, uh, of hiring business people as pastors without training. Tra- without tra- like mo- I know of churches that are just hiring and hiring and hiring people out of the business world. Not as like admin assistants, right? That's not really what we're talking about. But like as pastors, uh, instead of hiring people um, out of like seminary. So it used to be not that long ago, right? That you get, you you could you'd have a job straight out of seminary, right? And that's not the case anymore. Because well, I people think want to hire I think role. I could have a job out of seminary, but I'm looking for a job as a graduate from seminary that's at a, at a prestigious church. I need to find a church that'll pay me what it what the expenses I've accrued, um, right? I mean, that's a thing. Um, I don't think it's not insignificant. I mean, I can get right. a job working at a, at a church of, of 50 today, but I'm going to have to get right. a second job as well to pay for the, the first job. And so I think people would prefer to work at a larger church, but the needs of a larger church, we don't need five theologians. We've already got five theologians. Um, you we can never have enough theologians. Oh. As long as you only have the two on the back row. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But so anyway, yeah, I think uh, I think the needs of the church are changing. The educational model, or the, I think educational model is the word, but what the church, it needs education, but it primarily needs leaders. And leaders are yeah. more than just eggheads, more than just knowledge. Right. Well, I would take a very different view. I think what it needs is education and what it wants and craves is efficiency. And right now, uh, the craving of, of the larger churches in North America is at odds with what's good for the church. Uh, I really believe that. Well, so I think education in the sense of how do I live, I, I need someone to model Christian living for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not something that I walk out of seminary necessarily knowing how to do. Uh, for better or worse, maybe. maybe. Yeah, eh, yeah. Maybe. I mean, I need to know how to do things um, and how to be things but and how to model that for others. And I think a businessman may or may not be as good as any seminarian that's burnt out on pretending to read all these books and write all these papers. Well, we can we can we can agree <laughs> to disagree at the point. All right. Um, well, uh, I really appreciate this discussion. I think um, we are standing. Uh, there's a, there's a there's a phrase. We're standing. 
Every generation is standing on the corpses of the generation before it. And if you, you can stand on them forever, but those corpses will rot. Um, and so you have to build your own foundation in a sense. And I think if you don't know where you're coming from, you're toast and you're going to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, but if, if you just stay where you are, it's going to crumble around you. And so I think what works in the past, that's good, but we need to tweak it for the needs of the present. And if we're not aware of where we came from, it's, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to do that at all. Sure. Uh, I've got one final thought I just want to throw out there. I, I think this is important for thinking through the idea of church governments. Um, and it, it's, it's a, this, this is a challenge for the for our listeners. When you look at something, so if you're a listener, when you look at something like um, the sexual abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, or maybe the schism between the Ukrainian and the, Rome, and the Russian Orthodox Church, or maybe it's just... Um, something that happens at a church down the street, do you think to yourself, that's their problem or that's my problem? Oh, yeah. That's great. And, that's, and I think if you want a heart attitude about how you feel about the church, uh, so it's, I, I assume probably a lot of our listeners are Protestants, for instance. If you read what's happened, what happened in the Roman Catholic Church and you look at it and they say, that was their problem, you are fundamentally wrong fundamentally wrong about the church because the church is one yeah if one uh, if one part hurts it all suffers you know like you know, and and this is paul's point you know this is interesting in ephesians right when he says there's one lord one faith one baptism I and mean, it's interesting what that entails right it entails that we, we all serve one god and we all have one we all have one head we all can make one confession but also we have one baptism right? in some sense we share in common church practice we did a whole series on church practice because these church practices we do bind us together as one, right? We are all, at the end of the day, we can disagree and we can um, think different things. But at the end of the day, we are one church. And what harms one part of the church harms all of us. Yeah. And so if we – I think the attitude we have to have, the reason why we have things like church government is because it's coming to grips with this idea uh, that we all are responsible for each other. And what harm if something goes bad in my church, it harms the uh, Chalcedonian Orthodox Church. And if something is wrong in the in the United Methodist Church, that that's bad for the Southern Baptists, right? And that if you don't have an attitude where you can where you're mourning over the hurts of all of the church, I think that you maybe have gone too far on the scale where you don't see the connection between all of us. So that's why talking about church government matters Yeah, is because we all have the responsibility to submit and be a part of the global church, but we all have the responsibility to keep our local church healthy because that's what's good for all of the church. And so I think that I've been convicted about that recently, just the fact that don't view problems in other churches as well, you know. Those wackos. You know, those, pa- those papists, they probably had it to, to coming to them because they believe in apostolic secession, right? Like that's the wrong ad. You can disagree, but if you're not mourning over any sort of and that, that that's just as much true for Saddleback or, as it is for the Roman Catholic Church as for anything else. Sure, yeah. It's just like a, a family in a neighborhood. Uh, I'm going to take care of my family as well as I can because I know that's what I was made to do. But at the same time, if a family down the road, if their house burns down – and I don't move towards them, it's going to hurt me. Eventually, right. it's going to hurt me. Maybe not, I won't see it this weekend, but um, generations down the road, and my family and their family will be affected negatively if I don't do what I can to help. Um, sure. 
but yeah, well, I think uh, I think that wraps it up. We have covered a lot of ground, um, but I think that wraps up the episode. Um, thanks for joining us and the back row theologians. If you have questions or comments, if uh, if you don't know uh, what your church is, um, and no one will tell you, uh, we'll tell you. <laughs> we'll tell hey, you. By what the your way, a great is. resource. By the way, the uh, Handbook of Denominations in the United States. If you just search, go to Google Books, search Handbook of there Denominations. Uh, it's it's available on a preview of Google Books, but you it literally has every single denomination, a little bit of their history, and some. If, so if you just find a church and you're like, I don't know what that denomination is, uh, Handbook of Denominations is a really helpful for getting oriented to different uh, traditions, at least in North America. Um, it is also shockingly big for just being North America. <laughs> There are a lot of denominations, it turns out. Uh, it is it is hilarious, actually. It's like, uh, was it Truffles? What are those silly things? Trebles? Trebles? From Star Trek? Tribbles. Tr- it's tribbles. basically the Tribbles. Hey, the Roman Catholic Church looks at us. as there are denominations. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope, I hope, we hope that this has been helpful to wherever and whoever you are, and that you'll join us again in two weeks. Um, but until then, this has been Yates. And Ian. Thank you for joining us on the back row. Godspeed, everyone. Thanks for listening. Any views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily represent all of Christendom, so we encourage you to read and study for yourself and form your own thoughts. Special thanks to our production engineer, Johan Benjamin. The music was composed by Simon Yaum. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of The Back Row Theologians. More fun. And we'll have fun, fun, fun till the episode finishes. All right. I'm good. Let's do this.